are listening to a public affair for Monday, February 14th. Welcome to Storytellers of Color, our new monthly show that airs every second Monday as part of a public affair on KGNU. The main goal of the show is to provide a safe space for communicators of color through a series of conversations to elevate their voices and discuss issues of equality in the media. My name is Rosanna Longobetter. Our guest this morning is accomplished actor, producer, director, filmmaker, teacher, and storyteller extravaganza. I love that word in Spanish. It really sounds strong. Extravaganza. Donnie L. Bits. That's beautiful. It's Actamundo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who has been part of Denver's radio and television landscape for more than two decades. Donnie. Welcome. Welcome to Storytellers of Color. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The first question I have is, why do you insist on spelling Donnie <laughs> with a lower case? That's always the first question a lot of times. So it's actually the whole name, Donnie L. Betts, all spelled in lowercase. It's my homage and way to pay respect to my elders and my ancestors uh, because I'm standing on their shoulders to, to do the things that I do. They did the hard work. They did the heavy lifting, although we're doing some heavy lifting ourselves. That's my way, just a way in print so people like yourself and other people can ask me why. Then I can tell them about my father, Norris Betts, or I can tell them about people that I uh, really admire, like a Dr. Vincent Harding or uh, Angela Davis or whoever the case may be. Those are the people that I look up to. And so I have to be a little bit small in my spelling for them. So that's a simple way of putting it. It's such a beautiful way to start this conversation with you because it sets the stage, the stage mm. to ask you about your mentors. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I have many. I mean, many that I look at uh, as mentors close to me or somebody that I read about or admired. I mean, I love Bell Hooks, somebody else who didn't capitalize their name as well, too. You know, so I've read feminists. I've read uh, Marxists. I've read uh, people who are just part of the struggle, the quote-unquote Southern Freedom Movement, the people who are working today and trying to make things right and make sure that we're equal and equitable um, way of seeing each other and that we all are the same. Um, And I also look at young people as my mentors too, you know, young, young kids that are coming up, you know, my grandson, you know, my youngest grandson is 10, you know, he does a lot of things that are fantastic. Uh, So I look, I look to him. I look to my oldest grandson, who's 14, who's doing things, overcoming a lot of obstacles that he has to deal with. Um, so, you know, I look, you know, I teach at CU Denver. So a lot of those students uh, look to them to learn from them. Uh, they can share a lot of things that I don't know about. And hopefully I can share some things that they don't know about. So you look for mentors, you look for inspiration everywhere in your day-to-day life. The young people, they're the big teachers, huh? Yes, absolutely. They are absolutely. the big teachers. Many times when you have a kid, you think, oh, I'm going to teach the kid this, that. And then suddenly <laughs> you are like, I'm learning from you. It's really absolutely. humbling. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Your production company, No Credits Production, produces yes, the award-winning radio drama series Destination Freedom, Black Radio Days. 
and documentary films, including Music is My Life, Politics, My Mistress, the story of Oscar Brown Jr. And I can go on and on on all the accomplishments, but I'm pretty sure our listeners would like to know, how did you begin your career in radio? I began my career in radio, first off, because I grew up around radio. I grew up in a small town in Northeast Texas called DeKalb, Texas. So radio was very big. You know, I listened to radio a lot. I listened to, quote unquote, as they call it today, old time radio, the serials like Johnny Dollar and um, things like that, Long Ranger. And I was fascinated by that. But I also loved DJs. Uh, where I grew up, we had a reach of a, a radio like Wolfman Jack. He had uh, over 100,000 watts out of Del Rio, Texas. He actually was in Mexico, but um, but that that's what we heard. And um, there was another uh, DJ out of um, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, called uh, Randy Recordbart. And they played a lot of gospel music, a lot of blues music. And um, a lot of times before I knew, I thought these DJs were, were Black, but they were white, you know, but they were playing a lot of Black music. So when I, I said, I, well, that's I, what I want to do. I want to be a DJ. So I started in, in DJing when I was in Fresno, California, uh, going, to, going to undergrad. I went to several undergrad schools. <laughs> it took me 10 years to get out of college, you know, <laughs> but that's because I kept starting and stopping. But anyway, um, so my first job at a radio station was in Fresno and playing jazz, which I really wanted to do and I wanted to continue to do. But um, having that love for the serials, for radio dramas, as they call them. Now we call them podcasts, audio dramas. That's really what led me into doing that. And uh, being a storyteller, I wanted to tell those stories, stories of the people who had not been told before. So I came across a series some years ago called Destination Freedom, written by Richard Durham. Richard Durham was one of the first Blacks in the Radio Hall of Fame. And Richard Durham wrote this series in 1948 to 1950. He had written a series before then called Here Comes Tomorrow. Uh, had people in it like Stubbs Turkle and people like that, people who are legends in radio. A great interviewer, Stubbs Turkle. Um, but anyway, he also had people in it like Oscar Brown Jr., um, who became my film subject some years later. And I listened to this series called Destination Freedom, and I just loved it. It was about people that, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson. Um, it was about Mary McLeod Methune. It was about Lena Horne. People like that, people I admired and loved and respected. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to revive that series. And so I re revived it in 1999 on another station. And uh, actually on KUBO, and then I brought it to KGNU in 01, 2001. And um, been doing it ever since, you know? And now I'm creating new shows from the old shows. So I have more shows that are more contemporary, you know, like we did a whole series on Enrique's journey um, to tell a story of immigrants uh, trying to make it to the United States and their true stories. Uh, most recently, this past week, we did um, uh, the story called Give Me Liberty, a free man's story written by John and Sidney Fratrell. And that was a story about the, the descendants of Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry, one of the signers of the uh, American independence who famously said, give me liberty or give me death deeper story than than just those words. But anyway, we just recently did that. But it gives me opportunity to do shows like The Tale of the Bullet, telling the story of a shooting from the perspective of the bullet and the impact it has on families. So 
that's the kind of work I want to do. Um, so by doing that, I'm able to do that. It's a little bit more economical than doing a film, and it takes less time than doing a film. But also, it gives me a platform, too. If I want to do a film later about that same subject, I can do that, too. So that's what brought me. It's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> that brought me to doing these shows that I do now, Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. What is the difference between a theater production on stage and an audio production on the radio? You kind of touched that already. Right. Well, I mean, I started in theater, you know, many years ago uh, doing doing theater productions. Um, the first show uh, that I ever did was um, I did a show in high school um, my senior year. I was I was a football player. I didn't, you know, really wasn't interested in theaters, but, you know, they had this beautiful, beautiful substitute teacher who was our drama teacher. And she asked people to come and audition for the play. And I was first one in line, you know, so... So that, that was my first play. But then um, I wanted to do other shows. And so when I moved to Denver, I did a show. We did the first adaptation of The Hobbit, a musical adaptation of The Hobbit with a multiracial cast. Um, and I was hooked. And I hooked from then on. So the difference between the stage and audio production is, of course, with the with a the theater production, you're on stage and you have a lot of moving parts to that. Okay, the same with audio production, you have a lot of moving parts. But it takes longer. You have a rehearsal process. You maybe have three, four, five weeks, and sometimes even 10 weeks of rehearsal process before you even hit the stage for an audience. With the audio production, you may have several rehearsals, three or four rehearsals. It's all done in front of, front of a microphone. With mine, which was a little bit different until recently because before COVID, we did it in front of a live audience too. So that was no retake. You know, we just did it straight. And just like a live theatrical production, because that's what I knew. Um, and that's what I wanted to bring to the table is make it exciting for everybody. So you have an audience can see it. They can close their eyes and listen to it like they're not there. Or they can actually watch the things that are going on. We had a Foley artist with mix of sound effects. You know, we have musicians and singers, actors, all those kind of things in audio production. With the theater production, you have those same things, too. But you actually are doing it. You're not uh, doing it from a microphone in front and that sort of thing. So, and with um, um, audio production, it's recorded and then you can play it back later. You know, with a theater production, you do it and it's done. It has to be in your memory, you know, unless it's filmed or something like that. But and so that's the spontaneity of the moment. So that's, that, to me, that's the biggest difference. They're, they're very similar. Um, they're both very exciting. <clears throat> For me, I like to try to do it live, so make it even more exciting. But since we've been in COVID, we've been having to record a lot of things. So just because of safety reason. But it's still exciting to do either one. So, and I, I try to keep my fingers in all of it. I had the experience to be there with you and see and witness the stage production and uh, yeah. I remember before before the pandemic we were retransmitting that and I I remember bringing some students Spanish speaking students um, from Denver and sitting there and it was such an experience yes. such a beautiful yeah. experience so for me life is much better a yes. <laughs> hundred times a hundred times I agree I that's agree. the way it is Engineers don't agree with you, though. <laughs> they want that clear, clear, crisp sound, you know. Mm, so <laughs> mm, mm. I know, I know. I have another question, though. How yes. do you get these amazing stories 
it's incredible. One thing is to bring them the way you bring them, but yes. these are unique, amazing stories and real stories to life. Well, research is a lot of it. And also being lucky enough to be uh, surrounded by a great artistic community. Uh, I mentioned Enrique's journey. So being involved with Tony Garcia at El Centro Psychiatro, that was brought to me. And I reached out and said, can I do that? And then be able to interview Sonia Navarro, the author of the uh, book, and then the adapting to the play, which is just incredible. So that's, that's one resource. The other thing is a lot of things I write from dreams. So I was telling about the tale of the bullet. And also most recently um, we did in December, we did something called a James Stuckback Williams, a COVID tale. And these shows came to me uh, in dreams that I should write about these things. One was about police shooting and um, told from a protest point of view. And COVID tale was my experience with other people, uh, experiences in the mental health, not the mental health, the healthcare field, how people of color are treated differently. Uh, so I wanted to tell those two stories, one about the shooting and two about how people of color are treated differently in the healthcare field, how they are mis misdiagnosed a lot of times and end up being um, sicker or dying because they don't get the care that they need. So those kind of stories come to me. Sometimes I read um, an article that inspires me to write something or inspires somebody else to write something and we'll, they submit it to me or I ask them, I know that they've written something, can I use it? as a subject. And so it, it comes from a lot of different areas, uh, but I try to keep it contemporary by, like I said, um, bringing it from the head, as I said, rip from the headlines sort of thing. Yeah. So. That's because you bring your journalism in, you know, as mm. a good storyteller, that's what you do. You bring that flair and that curiosity of what's going on in the real world. Well, that is true. Yeah, I am very curious about what's happening and because it has an impact on everybody, you know. Um, as I mentioned, I have grandchildren and I teach and things like that. So I'm concerned how things impact young people. Uh, I'm curious about and how things impact families too. So when I mention the fact about uh, a shooting or some kind of random act of violence, I'm concerned about how it impacts that family, not only just in the moment, but long range impact. So if I can write about it or talk to somebody else about it or maybe speak to a mental health professional about it as a as a expert after I do one of the shows, I think that's my little part of helping. It's combining art and activism and, and saying that's what I'm trying to do. Art and activism. And yes. Trying to put out there the realities. One of the things that, since you are mentioning young people so much, that really touches my heart is what they have had to go through during this pandemic. Yes. I cannot even imagine being that young and having to go through what they have had to go through. Oh, it's been very, very rough. And especially for young people of color. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, they're already behind the curve when it comes to education. So now, um, you know, basically losing a whole year of education you know, some way to be okay in this kind of virtual environment that we're in now. And some just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't handle it. They couldn't thrive. They couldn't survive in it. Um, so you've seen, you know, not just dropout, you've seen a lack of interest, I think, in some kids. Um, so now maybe that's starting to come back again now, uh, that interest, because some of them are learning how to navigate 
uh, this this format, and some just uh, are back in school, so they know how to how to deal with it. Uh, but yeah, it's been very very rough for for young young people, and for it's been very rough for people who've been trying to teach in this format as well too. So teachers have it's taken a heavy toll on teachers. You know, um, I just did a um, presentation the other night uh, to an elementary school, and uh, it was all virtual. You know. And I'm also a professional storyteller, so I'm trying to do these stories virtually, but I also also talk about Black Lives Matters in the same format. So I'm talking to parents and young people, you know, like K through five, and it's hard. So I can imagine a teacher trying to do it all the time in the virtual setting. It's stressful. Um, I taught at CU 2020 virtually. Uh, it's difficult, very difficult. You know, you don't know. You know, because they can always tune you out. They can turn the camera off. They can turn the sound off. You know, so, <laughs> so you have to be um, engaging, you know, so that puts more stress on you as a teacher. And then it's put more stress on them to to pay attention, to focus, you know. Hopefully one day we'll be out of this, you know, if everybody just buckles down and realize, like, you know, I just need to sacrifice a little while longer and we can get through this. So... Hopefully, but the yes. world has changed. There's no going back to normal. People just saying we get back to normal. There's no going back. You know, this is what it is. You know, so we just have to see what what lies ahead and be flexible enough to go with it. So, you are listening to storytellers of color as part of a public affair, and we're having the opportunity today to chat with Donnie Betts. So I have now a hard question for you, because this is okay. for me one of the ones that always comes to my mind when I'm thinking that I'm occupying a space that sometimes I feel it doesn't not belong to me as an immigrant. But then I try to bring back my essence and I'm like, no, I have been here longer. My people have been here longer occupying America. So I must remember that this land is my land too. What does it mean, the word reparations, to you? It's mm, a good one. Very good. Thank you for asking the question. As um, Alice Walker would say, love the questions. So reparations means me. The, the term many years ago was level the playing field. Well, I don't know how you level it uh, unless we are paid reparations. You think about uh, and that's not just not just black people in America. I mean, slave Africans, you know, definitely helped build this country. And so did, um, you know, Chinese, Japanese, you know, uh, brown people, um, indigenous people. They all helped build America. The only people that have been paid reparations to are just a few separate groups. Um, but black people were promised. They were promised to, quote unquote, 40 acres and two mules. And that was to give everybody a start in building their own future. So people were just saying, well, you know, it wasn't us. We didn't do that, you know, younger people or whatever, or people in Congress that said, it wasn't us. Yeah, but it was your, your ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors. They reap the rewards. Not every single person, no. Not every single person that uh, is not looks like me or you uh, reap the reward. Some people were, you know, because it was a, it, it, America was built first on the back of 
people that were not white landowners, white male landowners. That's what America was originally fought for. And people have this misconception that, you know, or they fought the British because, you know, we didn't want a taxation, you know, representation sort of thing. You know, we can't, we tax them poorly. No, they were just wanted to get rid of Britain because they were, they were taking too much money from them, you know? Um, they didn't want to be a mon be ruled by a monarch. They want to rule themselves, but that didn't mean they were going to give everybody else a fair shake. And so there's several things that are misconceptions that all men are created equal. That wasn't, that wasn't ever meant to be. It was all men are not created, all white men are created equal. That's what they wrote in now. That's really what they wanted to write. Right. We were considered three-fifths, we being African-American enslaved, Africans, Black people, colored people, Negroes, whatever you want to call us, were considered three-fifths of a person in the Constitution for the longest time. It still may be there. So reparation would mean giving us our just due. And it hasn't, doesn't have to be in the form of just, you know, going to the bank and give me some cash or whatever. So give my, my children free education. Give my children that door of opportunity to form their own company. Give my children or their children opportunities that have not been afforded to them, even to this day. You know, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of talk after the 2020 protests and 21 protests like, um, you know, uh, all these different statements were made by all these organizations and companies. But those companies, a lot of them, their, their roots are enslavement. So don't just give me a statement. Make it make it plain. And don't just have it just to a few companies. Don't have it just to a few beauty care products, a few restaurants and things like that. Let's talk about really uh, in generational wealth because Black and brown people, for the most part, have not been able to build generational wealth. Indigenous people certainly have not been. So if the reparations are really true and meant to be, it's about helping people build generational wealth so that we don't have to deal with every generation trying to claw and scratch to make a living, claw and scratch to have homes, claw and scratch, you know, to have their own businesses and see those businesses fail because of lack of uh, capital. Uh, and revenue coming in. That's what reparation would mean to me. Um, that's that's the level of playing field. That's really helping build generational wealth and not just a few haves and the rest of have-nots because that's what we have now. It's really wider than it ever has been at any time in our lives, uh, the wealth gap. So that's part of reparations to me. It's a very big, big question. It's a big issue uh, for smarter people than myself, but that's my little take on it. I think that for me personally, by listening to the stories and the way you tell them and the sweetness you bring with the music, with mm. the words, with the images that you are bringing, you are repairing that story that was not told. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That is my goal. That is my goal. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Is there something that you would like the young ones to know about this, this way that um, you conceive storytelling as a healing mm. way of coming to terms with something that is so harsh and difficult? Yeah. But again, the sweetness that you, the, how you weave these stories is what is impressive and and I'm pretty sure that you are doing this thinking 
about the young generations to come so that they don't forget what has happened and they don't allow it to happen again. You said it right there. I don't want it to happen again. If they can learn from the past and try not to make mistakes that I have made, others have made, other people before me, before them have made, they'll be in a better position to make this a better world. Um, my 14-year-old grandson was talking about how can I help um, save the environment. He said, we can do that. We can save this planet. We just have to start and keep at it. You know, he made a beautiful little video for his class um, just, just this week about saving the planet. And that's what it takes young people thinking that way and thinking way into the future. And a lot, a lot of young people, 14, 15, 16 years old, are coming up with these great ideas or, or these products already, thinking about how things can be changed. So if I can encourage them, if I can help them in some kind of way, carry on their their work, that's what makes me happy. That's the stories I want to tell. I want to tell their stories. You know, this person is doing this. This person is doing that. If I can tell in a dramatic way, great. If I can tell it just in an interview format, that's fine too. I can tell it in a visual format, that's great too. But other people have to know because more and more people know about that. That will inspire them to do something as well too. Oh, they just I just saw this. This person was talking about how they were going to use this to help save the oceans. Well, maybe I can do this to help save my neighborhood, you know, and get these you know, plants out of my neighborhood, these, these, these polluting plants out of my neighborhood. Oh, I just saw that person who was, and I just heard a story about how they were stopping polluting in the neighborhood. Maybe I can help the farmers do something now, you know, so that they're not losing their farms. It's not turning to concrete and cement. It's not another development. It's growing food. Oh, maybe I don't have to grow it on the surface. I can grow it underground. Whatever, you know, because so much is being done. So that's what I want people to understand that, that just just try it. Just try it. Because even if you fail, you learn something when you fail. You can succeed in failure. The biggest teacher, huh? The biggest teacher yeah. is failure. Yeah. That's for sure. And I just want to say thank you so much, Donnie, with a lowercase d. It's... <laughs> For joining us for our Storytellers of Color, a collaborative series inspired by Journals of Color and Latinx Voices Group, with an open invitation to other storytellers of color to come into our airwaves, to tell their stories, and to occupy the safe space that we are providing every second Monday of the month as part of a public affair here in KGNU, your community radio. I have been your host, Rosanna Longo Better. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by an eclectic morning of sound alternative. Thank you so much, sir, for Thank this you. opportunity. I'm humble. Thank you. I'm I was honored. honored that you asked. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been my pleasure.